0: Alright, Genesis chapter 29 is where we are tonight. We, uh, last week, you'll remember, we were with Jacob out in the wilderness as he was fleeing his family because he had deceived his dad, and then God showed up in a dream, a beautiful dream of a ladder, a staircase coming down out of heaven, and we even saw how Jesus later would say, I am that staircase, I am that ladder. To see me is to see how heaven kisses earth. Well, uh, Jacob makes it further in his journey tonight and I'm calling this this uh, lesson an unusual love story and it is unusual Uh, this is the story about how Jacob finds his wife Rachel and he ends up kind of unbeknownst to himself receiving a two-for-one deal Uh, and receiving Leah as well Uh, this is in many ways a dysfunctional story But yet, I think through it, just like we saw last week, Jesus shines through, and I want to show you that tonight. So let me read, and then we've got just three uh, questions to talk about tonight. Uh, Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east, and as he looked, he saw a well in in a field. And behold, three flocks of sheep were lying beside it, for out of the well the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large, and when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep, and then put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, My brothers, where do you come from? And and, uh, they said, We are from Haran. And he said to them, Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? And they said, We know him. He said to them, Is it well with him? They said, It is well, and see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. He said, Behold, it is still high day. It is not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go pasture them. But they said, We cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now, as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, And the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all these things, and Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel. And he said, I will serve you for seven years for your daughter, Rachel. Laban said, well, it's better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me, the wife that I may, give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went in to her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, What is this you've done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, it is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years the word of the Lord, and an unusual love story. Um, what, what makes this uh, not ideal when it comes to love stories? We can list a bunch of things. What are some of the things that make this very unideal? Started out with a big old lie, yep. Two-for-one deal. Two deal, yep, which was not what he was ex- expecting, not what he was wanting, not done in a very fair manner. Loved he loved one more than the other. And so even though he does marry both and stay committed to both, yet he favors the one. And that and happens, it keeps going for a while, that he favors the one over the other. What else? Um, you know, they say, uh, you know, maybe you agree with it, maybe you don't, when you marry someone, you also marry their family. They're in law. your in-laws, right? How are the in-laws looking for Jacob at this point? Not very good yet. Very shady, off to a very bad start with the in-laws, especially the main man, Laban, uh, whom at first Jacob is so happy to see. And then by the time uh, Jacob leaves Laban 20 years later, he is praising the Lord that he gets out from under Laban because Laban is, he does more, y'all. It gets better after this, the things that Laban tries to do to Jacob. Well, it's an unusual love story, but honestly, I think we learn some things about the love of God in this story and about the grace of God and about the discipline of God and even about the Son of God. And so if you look at your bulletin, I want to answer three questions based on the three parts of the story. First of all, how does, grace, how does God's grace mark us? That's what we get from the woman at the well in verses 1 to 12. Then how does God's discipline shape us? That's what we get from the crook in the lot in verses 13 to 30. Or you could also call it the two-for-one deal. And then (laughs) he he actually does get four wives eventually because the servants do also become his wives. So like I said, it gets better, y'all. Just stay tuned. Keep coming back and then lastly how does God's son save us and I think the whole story points to a greater bridegroom and uh, I'll I'll try to show you that as we get there okay first of all there's the woman at the well verses 1 to 12 how does God's grace mark us Uh, what I want you to see here is look at Jacob okay look at Jacob Um, you know identical twins when they're born are very hard to tell apart especially when they're babies you can imagine I mean, how do you tell two babies apart? I mean, in fact, I was reading an article this week of the different tricks that parents of identical twins use when they're babies, and oftentimes they'll look for like a birthmark or a, a, a freckle or a mole, just a tiny little detail that helps them tell which baby's which baby instead of literally switching them. I don't know that I could keep up with it. I, w- I would totally call one the other and the other the other, Right. Um, and, it, and I thought about that this week as I was thinking about the direction that Esau's life is taking, and then now the direction Jacob's life's taking. Because these two brothers weren't identical twins, but in spiritual terms they kind of are. Because up to now we've seen both Esau and Jacob are spiritually just a mess. They're not. They don't have great character. Uh, Esau sells his birthright. And Jacob steals the birthright by shady means. Esau marries these foreign women just to spite his mom and dad. And, and we read, the last thing we read about Esau in chapter 28 was he marries more Canaanite women just to get even more spite over mom and dad. And yet, I want you to see something. A birthmark is starting to appear on Jacob's life. A, a, a new birthmark of his new birth. Of faith, which we read about last week, when he saw the ladder from heaven, something happened in Jacob's life. He he came, became aware that the grace of God was chasing him, and that the grace of God wasn't going to quit chasing him until it had accomplished its purpose in his life, which is what God had told him: "I will not leave you until I've done for you what I've promised." Remember that last week? That begins to make a mark, and so here the deceptive, you know, smar- smarmy. Uh, just hard to pin down liar that Jacob is, is suddenly starting to appear as a man of compassion, as a man of love and delight in other people. He reaches this well in Padam Aram, and there's all these shepherds hanging around, and they have all these flocks. And instead of watering the flocks, they're just sitting there waiting, because the stone over the top of the well is huge, and none of them want to move it. So it's like they're waiting for that next shepherd to come by who's a sucker, that they can get to move the stone so that everybody's sheep can drink, right? And yet Jacob gets there, and he starts questioning them. When he finds out that, relative, that they know his relatives, he's excited, and then lo and behold, Rachel. And it's like love at first sight. Did you notice that? The first time he met Rachel, verse 11, he kissed her and wept aloud. What a wonderful scene. I mean, Jacob's heart is clearly softening towards people. Before this, he used people. His mom taught him how to use people, and he did it well. He got what he wanted out of people. But here, just the sight of a cousin causes Jacob to melt. And what does Jacob do about that stone over the top of the well? He moves it. And not only does it say he moved it, but he watered the sheep. All those sheep. Now, now, okay, you might say, well, what a big deal, Stan, okay? So he filled up the trough and watered the sheep. No, I want you to think about this as it would have been back then. This was not a well with a pump in it. There was no water hose to attach to it to fill up the trough. Uh, you had to move this big old rock out of the mouth and then you had to bucket by bucket lower the bucket all the way down get some water pull the bucket up take the bucket off walk it over to the trough empty the bucket bring the bucket back put it on the hook lower it back down fill it with water pull it back up take it off there go back to the trough do y'all know how much sheep drink a lot We know about Laban. We're going to find out. He had a lot of sheep. And if Rachel was the one assigned to carry the father's sheep around because she was a shepherdess, she probably had hundreds of sheep with her. Hundreds. And Jacob, just out of the joy of seeing someone that he knew and someone that he loved and could have some kind of kinship with, does the unselfish thing that apparently none of the other shepherds were willing to do. They were all just sitting around all day waiting for somebody else to do it. And Jacob jumps at it. The deceiver is slowly but surely starting to look like a person capable of love and compassion. It's just a little bit, but it's more than we had before. And I think there's some great lesson in this. Uh, God's grace always marks people with that basic characteristic of sacrificial love for others. That's what God's grace will begin to do in your heart as you begin to know it more. It will will begin to mark you with sacrificial love for others. Uh, It is so true that we are not saved by works. Our sacrificial love for others doesn't save us at all. But when God does save us by grace and we come to realize that, it produces an unbelievable stream of sacrificial love, out of the fountain of his sacrificial love for us. When Jacob saw that ladder and he saw the angels coming up and down and he realized what links God was going to come and reach him, liar as he was, it did, something snapped inside of him. And here he is moving stones, drawing water, fetching water <laughs> for sheep just to bless this woman that he just met. Now, you might say, well, he wanted to marry her. Yeah, maybe at this point, but we don't know if he wanted to marry her yet or not. It doesn't say that. It definitely says he kissed her and he wept, but it also says Laban kissed Jacob. So if a kiss means, you know, true love, then it doesn't really make sense with the story because obviously Laban does not love Jacob, but he kisses him anyway. I think this is just a sign of greeting, a sign of, he is just happy to see somebody that he, that he knows because he's been wandering around the desert alone for now weeks, probably months, in shame because he's deceived his father. And finally, God is starting to, yeah, God is keeping his promise. He's with me. He's bringing to me my relatives so that I can find a place to live. And so I'm going to express that by watering them. By helping supply what they they couldn't obviously do for themselves. Now, you know, we know that, um, you know, Rachel probably wouldn't have been able to move that stone. How how do we know that? Well, there's a similar story uh, about Jacob's mother, Rebekah. Do you remember when Abraham sent uh, a servant to go find a wife for Isaac? Rebekah came out. Remember what she did to prove that she was the one that God wanted Isaac to marry? She watered sheep. Do you remember that? You have to go back in Genesis, but she was the one that came, and she didn't move the stone because she couldn't. So the servant of Abraham moved the stone forward, but Rebekah came out and kept drawing water until all the servants and all the animals and the sheep and all the rest that they had brought with them were water. And that was the sign that God gave Abraham's servant, that this was a woman who was going to be a good woman, somebody who was going to be a great partner in life to Isaac. Well, Jacob is starting to look a little bit like that, the good side of his mother. Uh, He spent a lot of time imitating the bad side of his mom. Now he's starting to get that that good, that gracious aspect. Uh, Jesus tells a story about uh, a man who owes a king a lot of money, uh, actually in today's terms millions, billions of dollars. And that king, uh, because the man begs to be forgiven, cancels the entire debt. And remember what happens next? The man goes out excited, only to be met by a guy who owes him like $1,000, and he chokes him, give me my money. And Jesus said, that, that, is, that doesn't make any sense, does it? Well, neither does it make sense that someone who's received the forgiveness and grace of God would not also himself begin to become a gracious and loving and helpful person. And so I wonder, you know, we ought to ask ourselves this. Do we see the marks of grace growing in our lives? And the greatest test of that is our sacrificial love for other people. Are we willing to love people even when it's costly? Are we willing uh, to move the proverbial stones over the well's mouth uh, and to draw the proverbial water out of the well over and over again to help another person? Um, That's how we know Jacob is not just same old, same old Jacob. And it gets better for Jacob. We're going to see the unfolding story, and by the end of his life, he's a hero of the faith. But it's going to take a while. Baby steps, birthmarks. That's the only thing you have to tell him apart at this point, is a little tiny birthmark. And yet it's there. Second thing, how does God's discipline shape us? And this comes from the crook in the lot in verses 13 to 30. You could also call it the two-for-one deal or the four-for-one deal, as Mike pointed out. I call it the crook in the lot because um, that phrase comes from a, a book by the same name that talks about God's providence uh, written by a man named um, Thomas Boston. Uh, a great scottish pastor from the 1700s and he said that god when he provides for his people always prov- always puts in the lot a crook and what he what he meant was you know you get a bundle of sticks and all the sticks are straight but then within that bundle there's always that one that's kind of not quite doesn't quite fit the rest of them you can use as a walking stick but that one is all crooked and you can't use it for anything and he says that's kind of the way our lives are. God blesses his people always. But every time, at every season of our lives, we can always look and find that one little thing. That's like a thorn in the side. It's like a it's a challenge. Um, maybe it's a person who requires extra grace, you know? Uh, m- maybe it's a person who, or maybe it's a situation that you just can't figure out how to solve it. Maybe, maybe it's a struggle within your own heart. Uh, maybe uh, it's a problem with your kids. There's always something, isn't that true? No matter what. And here we have it. You know, I mean, starting there in verse 13, it seems like all happy, happy, joy, joy. There's kisses going everywhere. There's, um, you know, Laban says, "You're my bone and my flesh." I mean, what a, what a class act, Laban is, right? <laughs> Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. You know, he brings him in for a month. And you're my kinsman. Shall you serve me for nothing? And Laban uh, seems to agree to Jacob's request for his wife Rachel, although he asks him to serve for seven years, which in itself, think about that. Um, Men in the room who've been married, did you ask your father-in-law to ask your spouse to marry them. Did you do that? That That's always an awkward thing, but it happens, should happen, I think. Um, Did any of them say, well, you've got to work for free for seven years, and then you can have her? No, hopefully not, because that's a little bit odd. Even for these ancient times, that was odd. And yet, Jacob, it says, because he loved Rachel, he was like, okay, I'll sign on the dotted line. And seven years seemed but a day, but a few days, right? That's a beautiful statement in verse 20. Everything seems to be going so well. And then there's the crook in the lot. In the morning, behold, Leah tricked. Now, we may have all kinds of questions about that. (laughs) How exactly did this happen? And we don't know, right? I mean, we, we don't know. You can only imagine, maybe. Um, it d- does say they were feasting for days. And so maybe there was a lot of alcohol flowing, and maybe my man Jacob work, woke up with a splitting headache, and then he discovered. Somehow, though, Laban pulled it off. Can you believe it? Now, think about this. Why would God do this to Jacob? Why, why would God let Laban do this to Jacob? I mean, He's just showed Jacob the ladder to heaven. We're starting to see the birthmarks of grace in Jacob's life, and then all of a and he's fell in love with this woman, this one true love. He's found her. He served for seven years, and then the crooked stick. No disrespect to Leah, but you know what I mean. Like for, for Jacob, this is a traumatic event. Why? Why does God allow the crook in the lot in our lives? Trust see, trust to trust Him and not what we see. That's uh, definitely. It kind of helps wean us off of seen things so that we trust in the unseen things. What else? Sure. Uh huh. Yep. Right. True. Very true. Yeah, yeah. Because, you know, we're not exactly sure what it means Leah's eyes were weak, to be honest. Um, the Hebrew could actually also be taken as soft. Her eyes were soft. Again, we don't know what exactly that means. Some people have always taken that to mean, well, she wasn't very pretty. But I don't think, actually, that is what it's saying. Um, Usually, in Hebrew, in, in the Old Testament, when it talks about someone's eyes being good or bad or weak or soft or hard, it's talking about that person's generosity, their character. So it's a good thing to have soft eyes, I would think, in the Hebrew mind. So you may very, very well be on to something there, Jan. I'm, I'm not saying that it's... That it. Yeah, there's that but. Maybe, okay, Leah had great character, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Maybe exactly part of it. And maybe there is a little bit of this sort of teaching of Jacob not to pay so much attention to the outside, perhaps. Although, you know, it doesn't come out and say it. And you have to read a little bit into it uh, for sure. To get that. I think, too, one of the great lessons, at least for Jacob here, and I want to try to draw a lesson for us from it, um, comes there in verse 25. Look at how Jacob responds to what Laban did. Somebody read it out loud so we can hear it again. Does that sound like anything that we've just heard? Yeah, yeah. What have you done to me? Why did you deceive me? Wasn't that exactly what his father had said? And that Esau had said? And shoes on the other foot. Okay. Okay. I'm not saying that every bad thing that happens is like a zap from God for some other bad thing that we did, right? I'm not saying that because that's not true. In fact, sometimes we suffer bad things for no apparent reason to us, right? What I'm saying is in this case, God is clearly using the crook and the lot in Jacob's life to humble him for his sin so that he he would want to find a better way to live than what he had lived before. How do you cure a deceiver? Let him see see what it's like to be deceived. Again, I'm I'm not telling you that every bad thing that happened in your life is like that. Like God is getting you back to showing you, giving you a taste of your own medicine. Maybe not. But I'll tell you this. Every single thing that's bad or bitter that's happened in my life, I've been able to learn something about my sin from it. Some humbling thing about me that has helped me not be so infatuated with me <laughs> and to become more infatuated with God, right? Because when that bad thing happens, we begin to see, wait a minute, what? okay. I, that's how they felt when I did it to them. When I made life hard for the other person, that, this is how they felt, now how I'm feeling. Wow. Wow. Sin's not that great, is it? It's actually very ugly. Poisonous. Oh, wow. How different Laban is than God. Oh, oh, wait a minute. How different God is than me. Remember, this is right after God showed him, I'll never leave you. And then here's Laban using his own daughters to trick him. you gotta, you got to know that Jacob's thinking, man, I, I would rather be with God than Laban. And that the thought after that couldn't have been far away, I'd rather be with God than me. Because Laban's a deceiver, and I was a deceiver. And so I think, in our lives, when bad things happen... We have to search for what redemptive or sanctifying element there is in it. And it doesn't come because we're going to somehow find, you know, exactly, okay, why, God, did you allow this? We're probably never going to find that exact answer directly from God. But what we can do is we can begin to examine and question ourselves, and we can begin to turn our backs. On our former trust in things that are seen, and place more confidently and firmly our trust in what can't be. Less trust in people, more trust in God. Less trust in myself, more trust in God. Less trust in schemes, more trust in promises. You see? I think that can happen. Paul, for example, had a thorn in his side. He doesn't tell us what it was, we can only speculate. But it was bad enough that Paul begged God to take it away. Begged him. Don't let this happen to me. Take this away. And every time God says no. 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 And then at the end, what does he say, Bob? My grace is sufficient sufficient for you. I'm not taking it away, Paul. I want you to learn my grace is sufficient. My strength is made perfect in your weakness. Isn't that profound? Uh, the book of Hebrews tells us this. It says that, the actually turn there. I want you to look at it. Uh, keep your finger in, in Genesis 29 and turn to uh, Hebrews chapter 12. You may be familiar with it, but. <clears throat> Hebrews 12 verse 5. Listen to what it says. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? Now, we've already heard in our catechism reading tonight, we are sons of God in Christ and all the privileges of sonship. Great. What are the privileges of sonship? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Hold on, God. That's one of the privileges of sonship? Yes. Don't be weary when reproved by him. Hold on, Lord, that's a privilege? Yes. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son or daughter whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons at all. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not, not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? Because our earthly fathers disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. And they weren't always right when they did it, but, but they did what it seems best to them and we respected them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. Although for a moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant it later yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And so in Jacob's life, in the midst of what for any man or woman is one of the most vital, important moments of their life when they meet that person and get married to that person that they love, that was ruined by the deception of a father-in-law who is a trickster. And yet God intended it as a means of softening Jacob's heart, showing him the bankruptcy of his sin, and leading him to hunger and thirst for God more deeply than he ever had before. And if God works that way with Jacob, you know he works that way in our lives. He works that way in our lives. The question when we suffer is not, God, tell me the answers why. Maybe in heaven he'll tell you. I don't know. Maybe he won't. That's his prerogative. But what he will help you with is to find your way out of yourself and into him. He'll always help you with that. And he begins to do that with Jacob, even as he says out loud, What have you done? Why did you deceive me? Oh. You know, have you ever said something out loud and it kind of got stuck in your throat? You choked on it? (laughs) Because you realized as you were saying it, Wait a minute, I'm saying something more profound here than I even realized. I imagine that when he says, why have you de- deceived, de- <clears throat> <clears throat> he, he's choking on that word deceive. Remember, his name is, means that. Why have you Jacobed me? The Lord, the Lord is after him. And so when he didn't know what he was in for, when he saw that ladder and God says, I'm with you and I'm not going to leave you till I give you what I promise you. That it included the crook and the lot. It included discipline. It included a way of of difficulty and pain. Uh, The great uh, Scottish, another Scottish pastor, i got a Scottish pastor thing going on. Uh, He said about um, the Christian life, this is Samuel Rutherford. He said, I know no sweeter way to heaven than through free grace and hard trials together. And you can't have one without the other. (laughs) There's no way to heaven than free grace and hard trials. You cannot have free grace without hard trials, and you cannot have hard trials without free grace ask Jacob the crook in the lot and this won't be the last crook in Jacob's lot as he ends up having to juggle four wives twelve sons not including daughters and a whole world of hurt to come in his life and yet every step of the way he's going to become more like God, more like God more like God isn't that good? We don't tend to tell people this when they sign up to be Christians. But we ought to. We ought to. We have no reason not to. After all, these are the stories that are in the Bible. That's how God works with his people. So why don't we? Why do we tell people, just come to Jesus, it's easy, and you'll go to heaven and it'll be all great? You're going to have a great life. He's going to give you what you need, what you want, and you're going to be happier than ever. I don't know. I don't read too many people in the Bible that had that experience, including Jesus Christ, by the way, didn't have that experience. All right, speaking of Jesus, look at the last thing. How does God's Son save us? And you might say, okay, where is Jesus in this? How are you going to bring us to Jesus from this crazy, unusual love story? Well, I think actually very simply. Number one... Jesus is the greater man at the well. Number two, Jesus is the greater bridegroom who serves even more for his bride than Jacob did. Number one, he's the greater man at the well. Do you remember, uh, just like this story, Jesus walks along in Samaria and he comes to a well. It was actually called, guess what? Jacob's well. It wasn't this one, but it was a well that belonged to Jacob way back in the day in the promised land. And when he got there, who did he meet? A woman. Just like just like uh, our man Jacob, he meets a woman at the well. What does he talk to that woman about? Drawing water from the well, which is what Jacob did for Rachel. He drew water from the well. Um But Jesus is talking about a different kind of water there, right? Uh, The woman actually is confused by it. She thinks, because Jesus says, if you let me draw water for you, you'll never thirst again. You'll never have to draw from here again. And she's like, what kind of bucket do you have? Because that, I mean, I don't know. Is there a big enough bucket? She can't get it out of her mind that he's just talking about water. And he says, no, listen. The day is coming when those who worship God will worship Him in spirit and in truth. If you believe in the one God sends, He will cause from within you springs of living water to come out, and it will satisfy you to the end of time, until beyond the end of time. And then she's like, well, who is this person that God sends? I am He. You see, the... (laughs) The best that Jacob could do for Rachel is kiss her, weep for her, and draw some water to feed, to water the sheep one time. But Jesus, when he comes to the well and meets this woman, and when he meets us in our lives, he can do far better. He throws himself on us, he weeps, he kisses us, he's, fell, he's fallen in love with his people. But instead of drawing tangible physical water one time for one occasion, he gives to us the streams of living water that come by the gift of the Spirit. Jesus saves his bride forever. Laban can't trick Jesus. Jesus wins the bride that he came for. He's the greater man at the well. But secondly, Jesus is the greater bridegroom who serves even harder for his bride than Jacob did. It tells us Jacob served seven years for Rachel and ended up getting Leah. And then he got Rachel and served another seven years to earn, to to make up the arrears that he owed to Laban. Now all of a sudden, owed to Laban somehow. Somehow. For getting Rachel, which is what he was supposed to get in the first place. What did Jesus Christ do as our bridegroom to win us as his bride? Yeah, how did he do it? He suffered, not seven years, thirty-three years, of suffering. 33 years of suffering topped off by the I mean Laban didn't trick Jesus but I tell you who did Pilate Herod the Pharisees the crowds who cried out crucify him they tricked Jesus they handed him over they treated him despicably and yet through that suffering Jesus won a bride he won a people that he loves with all of his heart I mean, in this story where it says, you know, Jacob loved Rachel and the few days that he served were, I mean, the years that he served were like a few days. I mean, it just reminds me of what it says in Hebrews that for the joy set before Jesus, he endured the cross. And the Bible says that joy was in part a joy in his people. Yes, it was a joy in his father. So he was willing to suffer for his father. But it was a joy also in us, his people, because he was willing to give his life for us. These stories, there are stories like this all through the Old Testament, by the way, where the people of the Old Testament, without even knowing it, are kind of enacting various aspects of the future life of Jesus. We call that typology. (laughs) That's a fancy word for it. They are types of Christ who is to come. So that when Jesus comes, we all of a sudden see it. Wow, okay, I see what was going on here. I see, you know, what God was up to. And now that we have Jesus, we kind of understand that, that those stories weren't just the individual random stories of, of people c- trying to struggle to know God, but they were really stories that were connected to a Savior who redeemed them and now redeems us. Jacob needed the same Savior. Jesus is that Savior who does far better than Jacob does in this situation. A major way, y'all, a major aspect of living the Christian life is learning how to see Jesus in everything in the Bible. (laughs) You say, why? Why do I need to do that? Is it just because it's cool? No. It gives me goosebumps? No, although it might. Here's why. If you don't get lost in the love of Jesus Christ for your soul, following Jesus is going to be a very bitter experience. Right? Very bitter. It's just going to be a grind. It's going to be like servitude. But if you learn how to get lost in his love, if you learn how to see from every angle that the Bible presents it to you, the the overwhelming love of Jesus... The man who meets a woman at a well to give her water, not for a day, but for eternity. The man who serves, not seven years, but 33, to earn a bride whom he had set his love on in eternity past. And you are that bride. If you don't get lost in that, then when God tells you to do something, it's just going to seem like you're a slave rather than a son, a daughter, a beloved bride. Rachel, it says, was favored over Leah. The story unfolds, and, and Jacob does begin to love Leah, by the way, and it, things get a little better, but it takes a while. It takes a while. But Jesus is not that kind of husband. It doesn't take him a while to warm up to us, even though our eyes are extremely weak, whatever that means. <laughs> you know, we are not uh, beautiful in form and appearance spiritually at all it wasn't that he came across the desert to get us because we were beautiful no the opposite and yet it doesn't take Jesus forever to learn to love us he already did and he does and he will do you see it it's an unusual love story this one kind of crazy really But you know, it's no crazier than the love story that's at the heart of the whole Bible. (laughs) That a holy God would love a sinful people so much that he would be born as a baby. Grow up to suffer. Willingly get turned over to wicked, sinful, deceitful men. And be nailed to a tree. To marry them. That's also an unusual love story. <laughs> the Bible's full of them. And we get, to, we get to every day kind of bask in that. Again from Samuel Rutherford. To live on Christ's love is a king's life. To live on Christ's love is a king's life. If you're trying to live the Christian life on anything else, You're trying to operate the machinery without gas. You're not going to make it very far. The fuel is living on Christ's love. Also, Rutherford, continuing his quote, I am in as sweet communion with Christ as a poor sinner can be. He wrote this later in his life. I, I'm in a, I believe I'm in as sweet a communion as a poor sinner can be. And I'm only pained that he hath much beauty and fairness, and I such little love. He hath great power and mercy, and I have such little faith. He has much light, and I have such bleary eyes. This is why I read people like this. Samuel Rutherford, I mean, sometimes you read his letters. But most of what we have of his is letters that he wrote to different people. Within his church, different people within his community, and sometimes you blush reading it because he's talking about like Jesus came and kissed me on the mouth, and you know, I mean, like like he is he is so into this idea that he's lost in the love of Jesus. It's sometimes even kind of weird. However, I get what he's do. I get what he means. I get. I really think I get what he means. Living on Christ's love is a king's life, and the only pity is we don't have enough love to return back. But we really don't, and we really won't. And so let the love of Christ, like a fountain within you, just flow, as Jesus promised the woman at the well. It'll never stop flowing, and it'll keep flowing into the ages of eternity. Amen. An unusual love story, but a true